0: Katie, do you have a dog? How did you know, Jesse? I don't know. I just, I got a sense that you had a dog. How's your dog doing?
1: Moose is doing really good. Um, as you may know, I recently started a project writing about Moose, specifically writing about Moose's testicles. We talked about it uh, a little bit on the, I think on the Patreon episode last week. I'm not sure if we've disclosed this bit of new breaking information on the on the main feed, um, but... Yeah. So I started a a Substack newsletter. It's all the rage right now called Moose Nuggets. And it's really just like, it's really taking off. I got like, I think I got like 30 billion views last night. Holy shit. Yeah, like 30 billion.
0: That means everyone on the planet. Came to your newsletter like four or five times. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, it's just been really stunning. I think I've just like blown Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi and you just out of the water because everybody wants to know what's going on with Moose's Nuggets.
0: So this is uh, Moose Nuggets and it centers on the question of whether you should uh, chop the little guy's nuts off, right?
1: Exactly. So it sounds it sounds like a joke. I, I get that. I think that a lot of people, when I said that I was starting a, a substack newsletter and I was calling it Moose Nuggets, a lot of people assume that this was just like, just like Herzog being a joker, ha ha ha. But this is real, Um and it and it, it has actually been really interesting. And I'm realizing uh, over the course of my reporting that this that this issue, like whether or not to desex your dog. It could actually like make the turf wars look like a fucking like day at the water park. There are crazy, crazy people involved in the animal world as you would expect. And the newsletter, it's, it's going to be about not just my particular dog's nuts. It's going to be about dog rescues and animal breeding. And it turns out that there's almost some like conspiracy level shit going on in this world. So it's been really interesting to talk to people involved in this world. And I was talking to my dad. Some people probably know this, but my dad is, this is his field. He's an anthrozoologist, which is the study of human animal interactions. And he's pretty well known in this field. Um, he has a book called Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We, wait, what's it called? Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat, Why It's So Hard to Think Straight About Animals. Actually, there's a new edition coming out this spring, um, which I think will be really good. And so I was talking to him about this because I, he's my, he's like my source of all the, you know, of like all of the data and who, to, and who to go to and who to talk to. And he, he pointed out to me that, About, like, less than 1% of the population, like, really, really gives a shit about trans issues, but a lot of people care about dog issues. Um, so I'm realizing now that I'm, like, kicking a, a, a hornet's, a hornet's nest with a, with a moose nuggets. But, of course, that's, like, my favorite thing to do, so
0: it's gonna be fun. Yeah. So it's gonna turn out, like, your writing on trans stuff was, like, a tiny little footnote, and the reason people will hate you will turn out to be much more animal-related.
1: Exactly. There's a, um, a woman named Bronwyn Dickey who, uh, I know from North Carolina and she wrote a book about pit bulls a couple years ago. And it was sort of a pro pit bull book, really, but a lot of people really don't like pit bulls and they want, they want laws passed, um, you know, like basically banning pit bulls in different cities. And the response was so material. She had to actually have security at her book readings.
0: Jesus. Well, things have clearly gotten saner and more calm in life. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, totally, totally. So uh, it's been it's been like very interesting reporting on this, and I'm excited about it. It's been this is the first thing that I've written since COVID. Really, I just like retired for eight months, and I'm I'm like stepping back into it. It's all free. Um, I I hope people check it out. Moose Nuggets. Com.
0: There was also there was a Buzzfeed article by I think Joe Bernstein about how crazy. I could be mixing up pit bulls and Rottweilers, which is probably like the dog discourse equivalent of misgendering. But it's about like some dog uh-huh. dog breed people have very strong feelings over just how fucking insane the internet is. I'll I'll find a link to that included. But yeah, this is – uh it's good that you'll finally get a new group of people who you piss off horribly. So I'm looking forward to that.
1: I can't wait. Yeah, it's been too long.
0: In the meantime, you are the co-host of Blocked and Reported. I, too, also am that – that was a sentence, right? Yeah.
1: There. <laughs> yeah.
0: Good uh, good segue, Jesse. I talk good. Uh, yep. This is Blockchain Imported. What are we going to talk about this week, Katie? You're supposed to introduce yourself first. I don't know. Whatever. I'm, I'm uh, Jesse... Uh, Jesse Double.
1: I am Katie Herzog and we are talking about this week. What are we talking about this week, Jesse?
0: <laughs> I like the way you threw that right back at me. You tell me.
1: If I don't, <laughs> if I don't know the answer to a question, I know exactly who to go to. So
0: we're going to talk a little bit about this like outbreak of, uh, Outbreak of gender stuff, which sounds like a sexually transmitted disease.
1: <laughs> it really does. It got a nasty case of gender stuff. <laughs> I'm
0: having a real bad flare up of gender <laughs> stuff, uh, just involving a video game. This is a story we talked a little bit about the on the patrons only episode recently, but I, there's just like new twists, and I just wanna, I have sort of a rant about this, and I know you have strong feelings too. We'll talk about that a little. We're mostly gonna focus on a big New York Magazine article about the inner workings of the New York Times. And as is so often the case, it turned out the two of us were Shocking. right.
1: Shocking. Who would ever have predicted? Shocking.
0: So, and then, you know, this story actually ties into another media story that dropped like a half hour before we recorded. We're recording Friday. Uh, November 13th, that is Matt Iglesias, one of the co-founders of Vox, is leaving to start his own sub-stack that is hopefully not going to be mostly about dog testicles, because if so, you're probably... There can scared.
1: only be one sub-stack just about dog testicles.
0: Okay, so, um, we... On a, our last patrons episode, we talked about this story involving Helen Lewis, who is a British feminist writer, staff writer at The Atlantic. Her voice was removed from a video game called Watchdogs Legion, uh, because she is supposedly too problematic about gender stuff. That's a, that's a fair summary, right?
1: Right. So apparently within the game, there was like a podcast within the game, which I find very rude. Um, you already have a game, you don't need a podcast too. But so in the game, Helen was was voicing some, I guess it was some sort of character in the game, and she had a little spiel in the game about anti-fascism. Um, and then when there were some complaints, primarily about an, ar- an article that Helen wrote in the Times of London, and the headline was, a man can't just say he turned into a woman. I would like to point out here that writers rarely write their own headlines, Um, and this was also we mentioned this on the Patreon episode but this was also behind a paywall so the likelihood that the employees of this video game company or the people who've been writing about this actually read the piece I think is probably pretty low the headline is sort of inflammatory but once again she didn't write the headline and the piece is about gender uh, this like gender recognition act in the UK which was recently sort of uh, I guess it was shut down it failed but according to this gender recognition act Instead of going through some sort of process of changing your legal sex, you would just like self-declare, I am a man, I am a woman, and then you would be legally entitled to, to female only spaces or male only spaces, including like prisons and domestic violence shelters and, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, there, there, there's some genuine complexity here. Uh, we're not going to get into because it it's like British law. But yeah, the short version of it is there is a proposed reform to the Gender Recognition Act to make it easier for trans people to transition legally which um i don't know based on what i have read about that that strikes me as reasonable because i think right you know there it was just it's always been harder for trans people to transition legally than it should be in many cases like sometimes it's a years-long process in the uk trans people who don't have a gender recognition certificate already have protections under the 2010 equalities act so like Right off the bat, there's some confusion here where people think like unless a trans person has a certificate, they are just like devoid of rights. That's not true. The other thing is like the reason the headline was phrased in that inflammatory way is like the self ID proposal really was like you go in, you fill out a form and that's it. And some people think that that's what the reform should be. Most British people do not agree with self ID. The polling we have on this suggests that while people are broadly in favor of trans people being treated in accordance with their gender identity, the idea that all it should be is like a declaration and then you are legally the other sex—that's not a popular view. So, right. Helen Lewis is—it's a 400-ish word column. It's laying this stuff out. Um, the headline again, people—I understand why people see it as inflammatory. It is accurately describing what this proposal was. Since that headline, this proposal has just fallen flat, like in, like. Self-ID is basically dead now, in part, and I'll link to this in the show notes, because people aren't into it. I I think there's probably a lot more support for other ways of making the process easier that don't go all the way to self-ID. There's some middle ground there. Um, But the point I made on the Patreon episode is, like, two. Fire someone for holding a majority opinion is really fucking bad and toxic. And this this story has just sort of metastasized since then because Rock Paper Shotgun is a old popular video game website that covered this. And they covered this in a way that was sympathetic to Ubisoft's decision to fire Helen Lewis. One of their contributors, a guy named Tim Stone, he's been contributing to Rock Paper Shotgun for 13 years. In the comments section, said he was somewhat sympathetic to Helen Lewis. And he went back and forth and pe- with people was respectable about it. Just like that, he's gone. Rock Paper Shotgun announces, not, they don't name him by name, but everyone knows who it is, that he can no longer contribute to Rock Paper Shotgun. A 13 year freelance career with a major outlet, they are a major outlet in the video game space, is over because he disagrees on self ID or he has some, you know, so called gender critical leanings. And because
1: he holds the majority opinion. He
0: holds the majority opinion, yes. And, and, um, People can look at the, the stats for themselves and they, this one, uh, survey from YouGov asked the questions very specifically about should someone have access to like certain female spaces even if they haven't had medical procedures. That, that's what self-ID comes down to because you're basically saying if someone declares they're a man or a woman, they are regardless of these other usual, you know, uh, requirements or criteria. So, this is something I just think we're seeing a lot of in our corner of journalism and, and the complaints you and I have about our corner of journalism are, if anything, more intense within video games. Cause a lot of hobbyist spaces are just sort of more politically radical, more angry, for lack of a better word. I, I just, I really want to like lay a marker down here that if you're in a position where people can't state majority opinions for fear of serious professional ramifications, that, that's really fucked up and there's real cowardice among other journalists to not stand up and say so.
1: Right. And that's not to say that all majority opinions are correct. It's not, no, you know, of course uh, not. we uh, could uh, like maybe,
0: maybe 10 years from now, we'll be ashamed. We held these positions. We need to be open to that possibility.
1: Sure. But this is a debate that needs to be had. I mean, the gender recognition act does have real life consequences, especially for women in, in vulnerable positions, women in prisons, women in, in domestic violence shelters, women in rape shelters. It is a, it, you know, this is not just like the radical feminist, who are who are afraid of this. And and I do think that some of the you know, some of the fears may be overblown. I, I don't think that there's going to be a rash of, of people just like self IDing uh in order just to like, you know, sort of like I like I don't know, like a kink thing or whatever. I don't yeah, think there's I gonna be a I rash don't. of that. And
0: this is something we get probably more emails from people who just dis- I mean I guess the people who really hate us don't bother to you- to email us but we do whenever this comes up we get emails from people are like no this is a real threat you're not taking it seriously i i think both you and i think that the idea that huge numbers of people would just like self-id for nefarious purposes probably is unlikely
1: I think small numbers will do it. I don't yeah. think huge numbers will do it. Um, and, and when th- this happens, oftentimes it becomes a news story, um, you know, because there are there is there is pushback because people are uncomfortable with this. People want segregated spaces, um, which I understand. There's a there's a a Mexican restaurant in Seattle up the street from my from my old house. There, I really liked it, and I would go there a lot. And when they they opened up a new location, I went to the new location. And their bathrooms were gender neutral. And this wasn't the sort of bathroom where you have like every stall is like is separate, you know, and they have a, you know, like its own washroom or whatever, like a a head to floor sort of like self-contained thing. This was just like a McDonald's bathroom, right? Just a regular bathroom. And those bathrooms were gender neutral. So... I could go in the bathroom and there could be a man shitting beside me and maybe I should be comfortable with that, but I'm not comfortable with that. And even worse, like thinking about someone like an older person, like an older woman who has been like using the bathroom for 80 years. A women's room which feels like a like for lack of a better term like a safe space to like be like washing her hands or peeing or whatever besides some dude taking a shit like it does feel uncomfortable and maybe like maybe that maybe progress would be less division between the sexes in this particular way but that's not the world that we live in um and so in this attempt to be inclusive of this like very like minority group of people what they've done is make the majority uncomfortable. And like, there's some real tension there. You know, I like, I like, I think trans people should be able to use the bathroom that they identify with. I do believe that. But I also think that if you're a trans person who has done nothing to change your physical appearance, like you identify as a female, but you have a beard and you're dressed like a male. And for and anybody on the street would look at you and see male. If you walk into a bathroom, you're going to be making women uncomfortable and people just need to be cognizant of that. And most Trans people are and would never do something like that because they realize it's violating the social norm. I should also say, like, I just realized thinking about this that I might get in trouble for what I just said about the bathrooms at the Mexican restaurant of my house, my old house. When I'm saying, like, shitting beside a man, I'm not talking about a trans woman. I'm talking about a literal male, like a, like someone who identifies as a male, because they've made the, the – the, I'm sorry to go back to this, but because they made – the bathrooms themselves, gender neutral, everybody is using, like, they're they're not sex segregated. That's not specifically about trans people. That's about, like, just, like, you know, cis people.
0: Maybe right? at right. some point, if this is going to keep coming up, we should just have, like, a British legal expert on. But but there's not – in the U- UK, there's not, like, major uh, static over there. It's not a major issue because I, my understanding is, except with rare exceptions, like, trans people can already use the bathroom there. And it just hasn't been an issue. I think in part because – most trans people are just trying to yeah. live as the other sex. Like it's, it's like there's this focus on edge cases that are very attention getting like Buzzfeed running an article, like, you know, this lesbian has a beard and doesn't care when it's like clearly just a male person who's not transitioning, but has, um, you know, identified as a different sex. Uh I just think there's a way to be respectful of all of this, but also acknowledge this is an actual policy debate or it was before it fell flat. And like, You, you, people need to be able to express majority views. This, this just has to be like sort of, um, I don't know, like a red line. You could bring in like the, the sort of trollish examples like, oh, do you think should be able to, people should be able to debate slavery? But it's like any example like that you come up with. There, there was actual. There were, there were abolitionists. There were literal freed slaves arguing for the freedom. Obviously, you also <laughs> needed the Civil War, but in you know,
1: I mean, or like, like the gay rights movement. Like, yes, there was a massive debate over, over gay rights. Yeah, and, and there was
0: radical activism, and there was debate. Like, there was conversation. And
1: guess what? It fucking yeah. worked like debate worked people coming out like the like there were lots of forces. it wasn't just like a like there was like one debate and all of a sudden people were like, yeah, let's let the gays get married or whatever but yes, that was a part of the process was was having a genuine debate and realizing that people have deeply held convictions about these issues, and some minds will change if you have an honest debate. that's an important part of this
0: when I was in college, we had like a floor wide vote about having. Not male and female rooms, like gender neutral. Um, so I think that's been the trajectory for a while and it, you know, no longer.
1: Wait, for, for bathrooms or for, uh, dorm rooms? Bathroom. Or so it was like, so it had been bathrooms.
0: like the boys room at one end of the hall and the girls at the other. And the thinking was like, don't make people do a long walk. And I think I was the only, this was like, uh, fucking 2003. I think I was one of the only people who was actually like still a little uncomfortable with that, but people at least pretended they weren't. So it's like, I think it like, 20 or 30 years. Gender neutral bathrooms will no longer be surprising, but I agree with you that like this is just how most people grew up and what they're used to and I, you know, people are allowed to feel uncomfortable.
1: It's the uh what was that that show that like legal show in the 90s um with the woman with the curly hair.
0: Schindler's List?
1: <laughs> I got to look this up. Um legal show 90s curly hair turf Gender. Um, uh, not the practice, not law. No. Allie McBeal. They had gender-neutral bathrooms, non-sex-segregated bathrooms in Allie McBeal, and it did seem like, what the hell? This is wild. So how how was it like? Did you feel uncomfortable using the bathroom with women in the bathroom?
0: I think I got used to it fairly quickly. My Me at 19 and 20, there was just such a pile of neuroses and uh probably undiagnosed mental illness that that was the least of my concerns. So yeah. yeah. But yeah, it was definitely at first, it took some getting used to, for sure.
1: I don't want to, I don't want to like be in a bathroom while a man's taking a shit. I just don't. I'm sorry. I just don't. That's maybe that's sexist of me, but I just
0: don't. Well, we're going to, we're going to get a, a lot of heat from uh male shit Twitter.
1: <laughs> Bring it on, boys.
0: <sighs> just like Tweet c- me
1: from your toilet.
0: Because a huge number of our fans have just been dying to take a dump with you in the room. This is, this has been what's been keeping them going.
1: I wonder how that affected masturbation rates
0: in the bathroom. Uh, bar pod, no context. All
1: right. One more thing about this. Uh, so Helen Lewis, it turns out, um, she wrote the script that she was speaking, uh, on the, like, uh, on the, on the video game podcast thing. And so they replaced her voice, but they kept the same language. So now it's just another voice reading her words
0: that she wrote.
1: And, and Ubisoft put out a statement that sort of, um, Uh, let's say, they. I think they sort of fudged a little bit. Let me read you part of their statement. While the in-game podcasters are following a pre-approved script and are not speaking in their own name or with their own opinions, we understand this collaboration itself may be seen as offensive and we deeply regret any hurt this has caused. Okay. Following a pre-approved script. She's following a pre-approved script that she wrote.
0: That's bullshit. Wow. So they, they erased a woman's voice but kept her words. They literally they erase all women. Literally. Yeah.
1: Well, I think they probably replace her with another woman, so they just swapped in another woman. You know, whatever, it's fine, and we're all the same. How do you know?
0: It's, how do you know it's a woman?
1: I'm assuming that I don't know. It could be whatever. It could be a. It's it could be a, a, a non-binary, gender-neutral, gender-fluid, pansexual fur, Furby. For all I know,
0: I um I violated my own rule against being an asshole on Twitter because like one of the people who celebrated this, like quote retweeted rock paper shotgun was like thank you is this um i don't know some some games jerk i don't know who he is but he someone sent me a tip that back in 2008 he just casually used the uh the t-slur to refer to trans people the t-slur i am not usually the sort of person who's like oh my god you used a bad word in 2008 but if you're gonna celebrate a fucking one of your peers getting fired for shit like this fully expect people to comb back through and find your problematic shit i just have i have no patience yeah. for the sort of journalist or, or developer or whatever who wants to see other people fired i think that's immensely fucked up i don't want journalism to have people like that in it i think they're like a terrible pernicious influence it is such a popular view that people should get fired over nothing
1: should we get the people who want to get people fired fired
0: yeah we should we should <laughs> whip up a mob
1: Yes. So this reminds me, of course, of this ongoing conflict over Abigail Schreier's book. Uh, the book is called Irreversible Damage. I haven't read it, so I won't comment on it. I've listened to a lot – or I won't comment on the content, but I've listened to a bunch of interviews with Abigail. And it's a book about RODG, rapid onset gender dysphoria. But also you didn't read trend. the
0: subtitle, which is much more uh, inflammatory. What What is the subtitle? Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters, which is – uh not my style of presenting this stuff, but I think that's what a lot of the controversy comes from.
1: Yeah. I don't think it was a wise title because this is like, you it's hard to have a nuanced conversation with a, a headline like that or a title like that, because a lot of people are just going to freak the fuck out about the the title and not actually read the book itself. I mean, they were going to do that regardless.
0: Well, but also a lot of people will, you know, they do view things in that light. So maybe it it will make people read the book. It'll, you know, have different effects.
1: I wonder who the publisher was. I bet it was a conservative publisher.
0: Yeah, the publisher was Regnery, which is like a a legendary conservative publishing house. And, you know, according to – I think there might be some bullshit to the way Amazon slices and dices these different categories, but it is – number 51 in all books that has to be a lot given how many books are on amazon number one in lgbt demographic studies
1: <laughs> number one in lgbtq that is funny that is funny congratulations abigail the reason i say i think it was a uh probably a conservative publisher because it was it, there's almost no way a, a mainstream publisher would publish a book like this do you want to talk about your shopping your trans book
0: yeah no i mean i so i i um at some point i'll tell the story of, of my own uh Attempts to potentially write a book about this stuff, uh, maybe not just yet. I mean, it, it, it didn't work, and I think there's maybe an interesting story there, but uh, yeah, let's let's skip that for now.
1: Okay. So, long story short, like basically, there's almost no way a, a mainstream publisher would take a book like this. Well,
0: well, and I think mo- I think maybe the, the the more important point is there's a market for oh my god, the trans activists are stealing our daughters, and there's a market for. My child, who was born two minutes ago, just said they're a woman. There's not much market for, like, treating this like any sort of other bioethical or cultural or scientific conversation with, like, actual reporting and nuance. Not that Abigail's book doesn't have reporting, but – um. And again, I heard her on Rogan. I I understood why people would be offended. But some of what she said just lined up with what I've heard. This kind of stuff does happen. But yeah, I don't think there's much market for like just sane discussion on this, especially after my Atlantic article just like immolated everything.
1: This is actually your fault, Jesse. So the reason that we're talking about this now is because yesterday on Thursday, the book was being sold at Target and a a trans person, I assume – uh, complained about it on on Twitter and Target responded. So here was the tweet that they put out. I think the trans community deserves a response from at Ask Target at Target as to why they're selling this book about the tra- about quote the transgender epidemic sweeping the country. Trigger warning: transphobia. And then the Ask Target account responds and said, "Thank you so much for bringing this to our attention. We have removed this book from our assortment." So that tweet, Target's response, has 658 likes and seven thousand six hundred replies um so quite the ratio so target like this is on the complaint of a handful of people there's like two or three i can see two at least complaints about this book there might have been more but like a small handful of people and target decides to take this this book off of their shelves
0: yeah there's a uh censorious attitude in the air but of course Any incident like this is only going to drive sales of the book. So it doesn't even work.
1: Oh, yeah, of course. It's totally, it's a dry sand effect. But just this idea that, that like companies are like that responsive to customer complaints, it's sort of hilarious. Like, like I have a problem with the Bible. I think a lot of the Bible is like deeply misogynistic. It's like pro slavery. Like it's like very anti, anti shrimp. I think there's a lot of passage in the book about how you shouldn't eat shellfish. (laughs) Um, Should I, like, if I complain to Target, are they going to take the Bible off of their shelves? I
0: mean, women are, women are being bought in sold in the bible there's slavery there's entire tribes being wiped out by a vengeful god the bible is the original problematic canceled book
1: it is and you know what i also don't like i don't like sweatpants that say juicy on the butt should i complain to target (laughs) about that
0: you know what? You know what? You know what else I don't like, Katie. The Karad. I'm, j- I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> don't
1: go first. Don't go first. Don't go first. Um, so uh, yeah, no beheading of Jesse, please. I need him. um But so this idea that Target should like respond to every customer complaint with like by yanking a book off their shelves, it's ridiculous. And a lot of people say like, oh, that's just like the market of ideas. Well, no, it's not the market of ideas. Like one person or two people complaining about this book does not mean that nobody else should be able to fucking buy it.
0: I mean, the, the people who say that's just the market of ideas and people should be open to criticism, don't actually believe in the marketplace ideas. Because then when you turn around and point out the book is doing well on Amazon, they'll explain that that's why the market is evil and smart people like them need to intervene in what people are allowed to read.
1: Right. So I tweeted about this and then a bunch of people said, well, the book is transphobic. And I said, oh, OK, so you've read it. No, of course they haven't read it. Um, You know, like there's just this assumption, you know, somebody says that it's transphobic, then therefore it's transphobic. Uh,
0: On Rogan, she came across I'm going to have to just read this fucking book because it's now part of the conversation. But um, on Rogan, she came across as milder than the title would suggest and... Again, this is Regnery. It's like a conservative, I think, pretty Christian publisher. Yeah, I think she's uh, Christian. She
1: worked for the Wall Street Journal or wrote for the Wall Street Journal. I think she is Christian and, and probably conservative. She's not a, like a feminist, I think, by any means. No, no, no. Uh, Helen Pluckrose has read it and she – I had a little bit of Twitter back and forth with Hel- with Helen. Um, some Someone whose opinion on this stuff I I I, I trust to be – Fair and, and even handed. Um, because people come for her on both sides. And she said that she disagreed with the end of the book, which made sort of um sort of more essentialist positions about like the role of women. So but not on the trans stuff. She said that the trans stuff was really like it seemed like, you know, backed up by evidence and and, and treated compassionately.
0: Yeah. Um let me see if there's anything else I want to talk. I mean, I don't this fucking Helen Lewis story just I got very mad online about it. Yeah, let's move on. Katie, do you remember the glorious bygone days of you know, I can't remember. When was the when was the Tom Cotton op-ed in the Times?
1: Uh, 2020.
0: <laughs> yep. Do you remember 2020 cuz I don't. I'm going to get the exact date on this. This is important. Okay, so back in June, uh, when we were coming out of the first wave of the pandemic, uh, Senator Tom Cotton wrote in the Times that we should send in the military to places where like rioting and looting was getting out of control, even if governors didn't want us to. And as you may recall, recall, R-E-Q-U-A-L, as you may recall, this uh, caused a firestorm within the New York Times.
1: It, it certainly did. A bunch of people, staffers at the New York Times tweeted in unison, this column puts black, Staffers in danger or something like that.
0: Yeah. I was very specifically saying this, this column literally endangers their safety. Uh, huge blow up within the time. Do you
1: think that like there's been any, like there's been like any meetings like subsequently, like it's three months later. Were any black staffers actually put in danger by that op ed? Uh,
0: yeah. So what I heard, uh, I can't remember if this is reported anywhere for just from a, one of the times people emailed me, but that, that this was, uh, they phrased it that way for HR purposes, like, if you say i disagree with this column hr has no role if you say this column makes the workplace unsafe it might have a role that's what i heard happened which would suggest like a bunch of people working for the well i don't know what was going on in the heads of individual staffers but the point is like i it was very hard for most of us outside the times to understand how this column could have put People in danger.
1: Maybe it was paper cuts. Was it in print? Oh, you know what? Not even paper cuts. I think it was just digital. Maybe eye strain. <laughs> I think it was eye strain.
0: There we go. Uh, so, as a result of this, uh, there was a, a big shuffling uh, at the top of the editorial page. And into this conversation stepped Barry Weiss, the at the time much reviled by her colleagues, uh, staff editor on the editorial page, she did a tweet storm saying that what was going on uh was evidence of this divide between mostly forty plus staffers who are more committed to liberalism and mostly under forty staffers more committed to wokeism, for lack of a better word. And we'll we'll get more into this divide in a minute. Um she was like fucking pilloried by her colleagues for suggesting that this divide existed.
1: But Barry could say pizza is my favorite food and
0: she would get pilloried
1: by her colleagues. They would say, well, when you were at Columbia, you said lasagna was your favorite food.
0: (laughs) You tried to get a a pizza chef fired. Exactly. Because he was uh, anti-Zionist. Deep cuts for the nerds. Um, So, okay. At the time we recorded a episode that I think, probably still is one of our most listened to where the it was right there in the title Barry Weiss is right or something like that. You can't expect me to actually look up the name of the episode and read it exactly, but we had Barry right Barry Weiss is right in the title cuz you and I both thought Barry Weiss is right based on our conversations with people of the times and elsewhere cuz this isn't just at the times we thought that this uh this divide is very very real and and you've seen this firsthand at the stranger.
1: Yeah, I mean I I bitch about all this this all the time but Let's just like, the TLDR version is that basically like everybody under the age of like 40 or like 36 thought that I was like a literal Nazi turf Hitler. And then the old people liked me. They like, cause I, cause my attitude was more like old school, uh, Gen X, like alter, alt weekly paper attitude um, and that was not the attitude of the younger staffers and this is not just writers i'm also talking about like design team and advertising and calendar and all of these these like parts of the paper that aren't directly involved in the content generation which as we'll get to in a second uh it turns out like have like way more power than i ever expected within the new york times
0: yeah uh so this controversy is back in the form of a big article in New York magazine by Reeves Weedman. He's a uh, very talented reporter. Uh, it's just about, I mean, here's how it appears on the page in front of me. Times change. In the Trump years, the New York Times became less dispassionate and more crusading, sparking a raw debate over the paper's future. And it's basically just like a journalist doing what I was hoping a journalist would do and and just taking us from basically the Cotton incident or or really from Trump's election to the present, explaining these internal culture wars of the times and what they mean. And some of them are more complicated than like woke versus traditionally liberal or whatever, but what it comes down to is that Barry Weiss's assessment was correct. This this opinion she had that caused her colleagues to so viscerally hate her seems to be true. It he Weedman says so in his call in his article he quotes people who think that and there's a real divide there with regard to questions about like what news is and what evidence is and what the role of journalists are and um i mean there's a lot for us to unpack here but as you alluded to one of the most interesting parts of this is a lot of the pressure to be a lit a bit less journalistic because that's what i think it is less journalistic more more activist is coming from, like, designers and programmers who used to work at Google or Amazon or Uber.
1: Yeah, real social justice warriors. It's,
0: exactly, yeah. People who, whose first job out of college was to work for Google, but who clearly love social justice so much they should influence uh, how the Times covers the president.
1: I, I'm sorry, I don't want to, like, like go on a rant about this, but people who really have, have no fucking business telling reporters or editors or any of the editorial staff how to do their fucking job. Yeah.
0: And, and they're just not connected. No. And and so a bunch of these 20 somethings, according to this article, you know, uh, the election of Trump freaked people out and it made people want to be more involved in social justice, which, which makes sense to me, but a, a fair number of people from these like, you know, very for-profit startup world places came to work at the times and they have very different ideas about what journalism is. As you're saying, they, they don't really have journalistic ideals. Uh, so that that's part of the cause of the problem. The, the other causes are like in certain ways, the Times has been sclerotic. The Times will not, you know, it, it's taken many meetings to just get the column, the Times to call obvious lies lies and to adapt in certain other ways because it has traditionally been a stodgy institution. But overall, there is a something of a like small scale civil war going on there, you know, over the question of what a newspaper should be.
1: Right. So there's a couple things going on here. And, and we should, we should mention that like most of this is happening on their Slack channel. So for people who don't know, Slack is like an, an instant messaging platform that a lot of offices use. And it can be really convenient. Like it takes, like you don't have to email your colleagues and stuff and like wait for them to respond. It's also a way of like forcing people to work all the fucking time because you have Slack on your phone. And so if your boss slacks you at like 10 PM, well, you have to respond to it. Not everywhere, but this is like frequently in places that I've worked. It's like that. So. There's a Slack channel at the Times called Newsroom Feedback, and this became a place where people from outside the newsroom would give their opinions on the newsroom. I think this is bad, in part because traditionally, there's always been a really strong firewall between departments like advertising and the newsroom. And the reason for that is to maintain journalistic objectivity. And this existed at The Stranger. Like, at The Stranger... Someone would write something, an advertiser would get pissed off. I wouldn't find out about it until like months later when I like heard like in like by the water cooler that a that a pot shop had dropped us because somebody said that they were guilty of gentrification or something <laughs> like that. They're just like they're that's it's really important for the newsroom to be separate from advertising. And so if you have advertisers going and like giving newsroom feedback and saying, like, oh, this is you know, this is like gonna hurt our, our ad campaign, any any like responsible newsman would say like, Like, shut the fuck up. We don't even talk to you. We're on different floors. There, there is a firewall. But Slack, the Slack channel allowed anybody to give their opinion on reporting. I mean, just the idea that, like, there would be a Slack channel where I could go, you know, tell the, you know, tell the, like, back-end developer what he's doing wrong is just crazy. But for some reason, it's, like, okay for people to give major feedback uh about their colleagues' work in this particular, like, very public or public-within-the-institution way. I Like, I would delete the fucking Slack room if I were in charge of the New York times.
0: Yeah. And, and it should be clear, like the article doesn't give specific examples of advertisers per se, but it does. No, it doesn't clearly like, you know, people whose role was just not editorial, uh, are, are, you know, critiquing their colleagues loudly in the Slack channels. And the, So the the way this was all laid out by one reporter was there's institutionalists on one side, there's insurrectionists on the other. Institutionalists, like, love work at the Times. They feel strongly about its journalistic mission. They're willing to slowly climb the ladder. Insurrectionists don't particularly care about work at the Times. Like, they don't think there's any inherent value in the Times per se, and they're sort of more activist and social justice-y. I wish this magazine article had gotten a bit more into the specific like ideological divides because I think like, for example, that they caught an op ed thing um, that you saw people saying this on Twitter that relied on this idea that if members of a marginalized group say something, that thing is true. Uh, I mean, as we both know, that they don't actually believe that because if it's like a black conservative saying it, they'll criticize it. But like people really were saying like, well, we should listen to black staffers when they say this column makes them physically unsafe there was no need to like actually make an argument about how a newspaper column made anyone unsafe. It was just like, you need to believe this group of people. Uh, and it's not even this group. It's like a sm- the subset of these group, this group who works at the times and who said this, that's the kind of thing where like a traditional old school news reporter would be like, well, no, it's not my job to just believe stuff because someone said so. Evidence is important. So like, to me, that's an example of like an actual ideological divide between the different sides in these conflicts raging in newsrooms across the country that we should maybe talk about and debate. The best part of this came so so one of the sort of quote unquote problematic people at the times is a recent hire named Liz Brunig. Uh she's like sort of a, a wunderkind. like she's I think she's like twenty nine. She now has like a staff job at the opinion page.
1: And she has like two children.
0: I haven't given birth I haven't personally given birth to a single child, which is crazy at my age. Not yet. Fuck you, Liz. <laughs> Uh, no, Liz is great. I like her a lot. And and one of the reasons she's a good writer is she's like she's not really into orthodoxy for the sake of orthodoxy. She's a Catholic leftist. She has smart critiques of like certain trends in progressive thinking. So there's this moment in a Slack channel where everyone's fighting. Brunig uploads a PDF of a... uh a work by John Rawls, an important liberal philosopher from the 20th century. She says the following, this is a quote. What we're having is really a philosophical conversation and it concerns the unfinished business of liberalism. I think that all human beings are born philosophers. That is, that we all have an innate desire to understand what our world means and what we owe to one another and how to live good lives. So to me, that's like the spirit of I'm in journalism because I am fascinated by the world and I want to talk about this stuff and I want to debate things and not just, you know, be told to shut up or listen to some voice just to listen to a voice. Here's the response she got from one of her colleagues. Philosophy schmosophy wrote a researcher at the times whose Slack avatar was the logo for the hamburger chain, Jack in the box. We're at a barricades moment in our history. You decide. Which side are you on? Um, just – I should deliver a clear message on the off chance Mr. Jack in the Box avatar is listening. Like, go fuck yourself. Like, <laughs> you you just shouldn't be in journalism. Um, what's funny is a Times person who I think disagrees with me on this stuff DM'd me and said that this person is actually like nearing retirement. I had pictured like a 20-something, but apparently yeah. this is an older researcher. Whatever age you are – Go fuck yourself. Like you, you, there are so many people who would kill even just for that entry level researcher job at the times to respond to a colleague saying there are thorny issues here to be worked out carefully and philosophically with what side are you on? Like just become an activist. There's better and higher paying work in PR, for example. Um, I just, I thought that attitude captured it all.
1: Right, this is the, this is the fundamental issue. Is the New York Times a newspaper or is it activism? You know, that's the question. This is like, this is a result of the Donald Trump election and people, like the, the, the piece mentioned that something like 91% of Times subscribers, uh, call themselves Democrats. And so I'm sure within the, within the, the, walls of the Times, it's probably equal, if not higher number. And I'm sure the people who, uh, who, who don't identify as Democrats are probably not just like Ross it, but also like, you know, the, the DSA members or whatever. So this is an, and like an overwhelmingly, um, homogenous, politically homogenous institution and of course with the election of donald trump like a lot of people there's this impulse to do everything that you can to fight back but there has to be some higher ideal and if you ruin the paper to to resist this president who is going to be gone in four years it's not coming back um i like i think the times rep just the times reputation among my in my head has just fallen so much in the last four years because they have shown themselves unable to do the basic work of being of Objective or at least appearing to be objective because they don't care about that anymore.
0: Right. Well, so the, I mean, this get to like when the Tom Cotton, you know, staffers in danger thing happened, you and me and a bunch of people like were publicly and privately being like, we ha- this makes no sense. What are they doing? It's creepy to all tweet this in unison. Uh, Daniel Ockrent, who was the paper's first public editor in like the early aughts, said I think James Bennett's firing was as meaningful for how the paper is perceived as Jason Blair was. Jason Blair, a uh, big plagiarism scandal. You know, I think there's something to that. I think the Times really lost a lot of credibility in a lot of people's eyes by the way they handled this. And, um, yeah, I just, I, I, I wish we could drag some of these ideological debates out in the open instead of having it just be like, whose side are you on? Do you support black staffers or oppose? I mean, obviously, this idea that if you don't agree with one specific claim that doesn't make sense, you're against racial justice or pro Trump. I was also, um, I, w- I was a little bit personally triggered by some of that stuff about like developers and other randos chiming in on editorial stuff because of an uh, experience I had myself.
1: Uh, tell us about it.
0: I, uh, so there's a thing in Times columns that seems to happen fairly frequently where they just say stuff that's completely false. Uh, there's not much like quality control there, at least. I've, you can notice like pretty basic errors pretty consistently. Um, one of those errors had to do with my work. It had to do with my, my, this will never fucking die Atlantic article about detransition and trans youth and a, um, trans writer just like wrote stuff about my views that were. Not only false, but I had said the opposite in the article. So I.
1: I'm so shocked that that would happen. I know. It's very
0: surprising. It's
1: just who, that must have been the first and only time.
0: Yeah. I've never been misrepresented before. No, it was, it was frustrating. He's like something, a point I made so transparently in the piece saying, I believe X. And then the New York fucking times, Jesse single believes the opposite of X. I, anyway, I, I wrote an email to like one of the top editors there. I was like, you know, this is just. Wrong. And he let me write a letter to the editor uh, correcting it. I think he should have offered to uh, correct it. It warranted a correction. Either way, they quickly. So they didn't actually correct it? No, they didn't correct it. In the it. piece? No. Oh, my I mean, God. You know, it's just a, a false claim in the most important paper in the world. But whatever. NBD. Uh, NBD. NBD. Anyway, so they did let me write a letter to the editor. Um the – one of the Slack channels, I think it was the Diversity Slack, was very mad that I was allowed to correct the record. And I was leaked a screenshot of it that included both – um she's now departed, but like a really not a great writer. Uh She was mad about it. A bunch of like pro- – Wait, can I guess? I probably shouldn't say publicly.
1: Wait, let me guess and then we'll bleep it out.
0: Okay. Yeah, it was her. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. <laughs> she's the worst. Um – Uh, So it was a bunch of like engineer and like software and just people who had nothing to do with the editorial process who were aghast that I had been given this opportunity to correct the record. And it was just it demonstrated to me how there are just two completely different worlds at work here because to me, this was like an easy journalistic call that you need to at least let the person correct the record. Basic journalism 101, but these people who were exerting influence on the editorial process were just from a different world. Like the I don't I didn't recognize the names, but I'm sure they were some of these people from like Uber and Google, who just didn't understand how journalism worked and, and saw the world as like I'm a bad person. How could the Times platform me and give me a chance to respond to this? And I, it was a little bit shocking just to see this out in the open uh, and to know that like obviously this is going on 24 seven, and this was well before the Tom Cotton stuff really ratcheted all this to overdrive like this screenshot like blew me away I just I was like this is what's going on at the fucking most important paper in the country so that's why I was personally traumatized and people should send me money
1: you know it's it's kind of the same thing that happened At target over the Abigail Schreier book where these minority voices who really shouldn't have any impact on your business or whatever somehow exactly as you said they can exert influence how these people have power like and I don't think the problem is even you know them like as much expressing their opinion as the fact that The higher-ups listen, that this actually – they actually do have an impact. Like you wrote a piece for New York Mag a couple years ago before we had the word cancel culture, but when these call-outs started happening about how corporations just need to stop listening to Twitter. And you were right about that. And of course, like that's the opposite of what has happened. There's one other uh, other part from this New York Magazine um, piece I wanted to bring up. So there's a section about uh this editor, Carolyn Ryan, who has been tasked with editing uh, like the some of the pagers, like I would say, I guess contrarians. Um Ben Smith is one, Michael Powell, who's done some like great reporting recently on like free speech and identity stuff, and the other is Nellie Bowles. Um and uh Nellie is a a tech and business reporter out in San Francisco, and she also happens to be engaged to Barry Weiss. So Nellie had written a piece about she had gone to Seattle, she had gone to Chaz, and she had, uh, she interviewed a bunch of people who, who owned businesses around sort of the Chaz perimeter, including a coffee shop that I used to go to, like every other day, owned by a, a gay dude, a, a a uh, uh, gay of color is that the correct term um he's not white anyway uh, goc so, he's yeah, goc, a goc. A goc. Uh, <laughs> he's a he's a nice guy i like him a lot and he was compl- he was part of this lawsuit against the city because the city hadn't like shut down chaz chop and it was destroying his business after his business was already being destroyed because of the fucking pandemic. Um, and so Nellie wrote this great piece that was like one of the only pieces, like if you had read the vast majority of coverage, either local or national, outside of conservative coverage about CHOP, Chaz, the autonomous zone in Seattle that like rose up in the aftermath of the George George Floyd killing and all of the BLM protests this summer. Um If you had like all of the local coverage, including from The Stranger and from most of the local outlets was like unquestionably positive, including when like people started dying. I think, I think ultimately three people died in this like six block radius, which is not the area like – it's an area I know really well because my office, the stranger office, was inside of Chaz. And this was an affluent area. Like it's right beside a park. Um, there's a lot of like, you know, million-dollar – multi-million-dollar condos on the perimeter of it. Uh, and then all of a sudden, like, it's this anarchist zone. It's like, like, half anarchist zone and then like slash half like homeless encampment. Um And so but most of the most of the coverage of this was just like unquestionably positive. And so Nellie went and she talked to business owners and how this was impacting their business. And so here's a here's a section from the piece. Some of Bull's colleagues looked at her reporting skeptically. In part, they told me, because of her relationship with Barry Weiss. <laughs> the accusation was that Bell- Bull's reporting had become tinged with her partner's ideology.
0: Jesus Christ, man. <laughs>
1: Come on. Like, that's a reason to criticize your colleagues. It's not because, like, if, if Nellie weren't with Barry, I don't think they would have this fucking problem. It's because Barry is toxic to them. They- so they can't just look at the reporting on its face. It- it's like, it's like, She's, she's with Barry, therefore she's bad.
0: Yeah, there's just a level of contempt there to be like, oh, what, like her, uh, Barry's problematicness is sexually transmitted and, and Nellie must have con, I mean, it's just, it's sort yeah. of gross. Yeah, it is gross. I mean, I, I would just encourage everyone to read this, this magazine article. We're focusing on one aspect of it. There's some other interesting stuff there and I think there have been, you know, actual real roadblocks in in making the Times a less white elite institution and make it more diverse. So I don't want to um, downplay that. Obviously, from this podcast point of view, we're most worried about journalists and academics' ability to do their job, which which is feeling increasingly crimped. Um, I guess this should, unless you had anything else to say about that article, maybe this should lead us into Maddie.
1: Yeah, no, this is uh, this is the good segue. I mean, speaking of of crimping,
0: yeah. So, you know, shortly before we sat down to record this today, Matt Iglesias announced that he is leaving Vox, uh, although he's, he's still doing a limited run podcast for them for the next eight weeks, but he's setting up on Substack. He's joining other such luminaries as, um, you know, Andrew Sullivan. We've talked about Glenn Greenwald. We've also talked about Moose Nuggets. Moose Nuggets. Moose. Yeah. <laughs> Moose's balls as a Substack. Um, and Matt is not the sort of guy who's gonna like be a flamethrower and burn bridges on his way out. Um, but we are, we are. Yeah. <laughs> if you've been watching shit unfold at Vox and especially what happened after he signed the Harper's letter, I-, I think it's very clear that it is harder and harder for people like Matt Iglesias who view the world with genuine curiosity, uh, agree with him or no, and, and who just sort of. Our policy-minded and careful thinkers, it's harder and harder for them to really do their jobs at a place like Fox.
1: Right. We should give a little a little background on the Harper's letter letters, so uh, people who weren't listening then know what we're talking about.
0: Yeah. I mean, so the Harper's letter, uh, Google it. God, God save your soul for what comes up. But Katie and I both signed it. Matt Iglesias signed the Harper's letter. Um, one of his colleagues-
1: Wait, uh, it was a letter defending, like broadly defending the values of free speech. Yeah, That's it. it was a letter- <laughs>
0: Defending, broadly defending the values of free speech and say, basically saying, like, people shouldn't have to risk, like, ruin for holding unpopular opinions. Um, One of his colleagues, a, a trans woman at Vox, who's a culture critic named Emily Vanderwerfer, uh, I think I have her name right, she publicly said on Twitter that she was sending a letter to the bosses at Vox because Matt signing this letter made her unsafe at work or, or less safe. Uh, And... To me and a lot of others, like nothing could have better proved the point of the letter than someone who was so outraged at someone signing a milquetoast letter on free speech that they felt less safe and that they had to report their colleague, which is what it is to send an email to your, colleague, to your employer about something your colleague did. To be fair, Emily said she wasn't trying to get him in trouble. I think you're
1: being a little overly generous, generous there. If someone says, I'm not trying to hurt you while they're beating your head in with a bat, I mean, come on, like – she wrote a letter to the bosses. What does she think is going to fucking happen?
0: Right. Um. And, th- and this gets more complicated because Emily subsequently blamed me for an online pylon that <laughs> ensued, which is like I tweeted about it three times. Every conservative outlet in the country covered it. A thousand Twitter accounts with more people than mine uh, wrote about it. I... I'm not happy she got piled on.
1: She then said that she was getting inundated with death threats, and I said it wasn't true, so she can blame me. And and subsequently, and nobody like that. So we did a podcast about this. People were mad at me for saying this, but I looked through all of the like mentions. I looked. I spent like a lot of time like combing through these mentions and also looking up keywords. There was some, like, transphobic shit, like misgendering and stuff like that directed at her. But in terms of, like, uh, you know, like, actual death threats, I couldn't find a single one. Um, and, uh, and so I said this on the podcast fully – anticipating that, you know, all of a sudden they're going to show up. Well, they didn't, there was, they have not emerged since then. So I think I was vindicated. You think I was wrong about this, but I think I was vindicated.
0: Yeah, I think you're wrong just in the sense that it, it strikes me as impossible that a trans woman caught in a cons- angry conservative maelstrom wouldn't have gotten some death threats and maybe not wanted to share them. But, you know, that said, um, the point is I, I hate that I became a part of this story. I didn't want her piled on. I probably shouldn't have tweeted about it at all. It's just, it's sort of, it It's ridiculous. Uh, to pretend that the harassment was because of me, given that this was like a national conservative media story. Either way, um, if you're Matt Iglesias and signing an open letter, also signed by like Noam Chomsky and a bunch of people, including the most famous people in the world, Katie Herzog and Jesse Singel, if that leads you to a colleague publicly saying that about you, that she feels less safe, and being Matt Iglesias, you have an opportunity to set up your own shop and probably make more money for all I know. Um, you know, it, to me, that would just be such a strong signal. Like, I need to get the fuck out of here. Uh, and there was also some tension between him and Ezra Klein, one of his co-founders where he, Matt clearly felt he couldn't speak openly about the situation. Uh, I think it, it was a since deleted tweet, but he said so, said something to that effect to Ezra on Twitter. So, um, Places like Vox are just going to continue to shed people like Matt Iglesias. And again, he's a guy where like, even if you disagree with him, what he writes isn't predictable. It isn't stupid. It isn't knee jerk. He really is seeking to understand the world and complicated policy issues. And trying to understand complicated policy issues is not compatible with being a, a crusader for a very narrow version of social justice. So, I, I just i Vox was already in trouble financially but you can't really I don't think you can afford to lose people like him because like he really adds value
1: yeah but not to the colleagues I mean this is the this is the issue he might add value to the readers but when you have you know a, like insurrection on the part of your staffers uh accusing somebody of like making you feel unsafe or somehow putting you in danger for doing something like signing an open letter. I mean, I would not want to be management at a place like this. I mean, trying to balance like the product versus the angry staffers braying at you from below would be just a total impossibility. So it makes perfect sense that so many people are fleeing their institutions, institutions that are already not doing well because of COVID, Fleeing them for independence because yeah, you can make way more fucking money and you don't have to deal with these headaches. Um, You know, it's been great for us. And you know, there are some, like we've talked about this before, but there are some problems with this model. For one thing, it's creating narrower and narrower echo chambers. You know, if, 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 if Glenn Greenwald or Andrew Sullivan or Matt or whoever can cultivate their own audience, that means that people who, uh, who otherwise like read Vox or the intercept or Rolling Stone or whatever aren't going to be, f- Aren't going to have these opinions fed to them. These these like problematic opinions that they might agree with, and I think that is a really big problem. The other issue is just like how many how many substacks are going to make it? How many are going like how many how many independent creators can uh can be su- supported if you have to pay like fifty bucks a year or whatever for Matt's newsletter and fifty for Glenn's and fifty for for Andrews and a hundred for mine and a thousand for yours? You know, well then like it's just a. I'm not sure how many, how many can support it. Cause I don't know that it's good for the consumer when you can get like the New Yorker for 80 bucks a year or whatever. The other thing is that I think the people who this is really, like this movement is really going to hurt are editors. Um, uh, because you don't need an editor with, with a, with a model like this. Like, I know Andrew has an elevator, an editor. Um, I don't know if, if Glenn has an editor. I sort of doubt it.
0: I mean, a, a good editor can make a, a big totally, difference. Totally, totally. Yeah. The whole point of Substack is writing without one if, if you can. Um, I mean, I guess, so, so, I, I think, I'm not sure people understand how top heavy, like, traffic patterns are. I mean, let me explain this. And th- this is just based from being at New York Magazine and having access to their numbers for a while. The sense I got is that, like, the, the superstars in that world, and of course we don't mean superstar like LeBron James or Madonna, but like, a Jonathan Chait or an Andrew Sullivan, they get huge amounts of consistent traffic. They have big fan bases they have built up over decades now. And a lot of the people, I would guess, a lot of the people who sign up to subscribe for a place like New York Magazine do it in part because of the relationship they feel to an Andrew Sullivan uh or a John Chate. I could be wrong about any of this. I, I don't think I am. You're,
1: I mean, this at The Stranger, Dan's traffic, Dan Savage's traffic was... Like, when we, like, we they would periodically send out, uh, like reports with, you know, with like analytics about who was getting the traffic or whatever. I actually asked them to stop because I thought it was bad for morale. Even though Dan was consistently, like, far and away, had probably, like, three or four times the traffic as the next highest person, which was usually me. Um, yeah. and I th- and I thought this was bad for morale and I complained about it and then people were, like, mad at me for complaining. But I thought, for me, it was like, you know, I just, I don't think, like, personally, as a writer, I didn't like paying attention to the numbers because I didn't want the numbers to influence my work. Um, and I yeah. felt like, well, if I'm at the top of this heap, I should be the one complaining about this because this is really going to impact the people at the bottom of the heap. Um, I thought I was doing something nice, but of course, everybody complained about it.
0: Yeah. Anyway. So I think – I just think people don't realize maybe how lopsided it is. And like I think my theory is borne out by the fact that whenever one of these guys jumps to the Substack, they instantly get onto that front top 10 page. Iglesias – uh, well he'll be in i think he'll be in the top 10 very soon just like greenwald was just like sullivan was uh so this just leaves, like moose nuggets just like moose nuggets um this leaves these outlets bereft of like pretty big names that and this is not going to make the financial situation better because i do think these guys are subsidizing a lot of other work in the same way like Famous Times columnists, including ones we might not like, do get a lot of traffic. And, uh, you know, that article pointed out that the opinion page at the Times, which is where the big personalities are, gets a huge amount of traffic and generates a huge amount of revenue relative to everything else that is funding journalism. That is funding investigative reporting that can cost thousands of dollars a day in some cases. So that's another th- reason I'm worried about Substack. I'd rather have a glacius, like the, the, the value his work generates than part of it getting redistributed, for lack of a better word, to like investigative journalism at Vox. The problem is, It's increasingly the case that Vox doesn't really do that much valuable work. I don't, I don't want Iglesias' value getting redirected to the eighth fucking article about how we should abolish the police or examine whiteness. And so it's like, what, what else do these outlets have to offer us when Iglesias is gone? We were talking about this. There's people at Vox we respect a great deal. Jane Kostin, she's about to leave for the Times. Sean Illing, he's great. Uh, Herman Lopez, uh, I think Brian Resnick does good stuff on the science side or, Rinsick? Res I think it's Resnick. Th- these are all writers who are really good. I don't want to act like-
1: Aaron Rupar does great things on Twitter. Great
0: video. As you've said. Great
1: video. He is really good at taking video, stripping it of context and uh, putting it out there for 100,000
0: people to retweet. Yeah. He's,
1: I, he's like, he's like on the confirmation bias beat and he is really good at that.
0: I, I just look, I again, we maybe we're viewing this like, this is sort of confirmation bias or or sort of wishful thinking. I don't think there's a big market for the 8 millionth piece about examining whiteness. I think there is a market for what Glenn Greenwald and Andrew Sullivan and Matt Taibbi and others do. So we'll see. Also the economic outlook for these publications might get better. Um, you know, next year when when COVID abates, but I I don't think the post Trump years are going to be very good. I don't think a Joe Biden in the White House is necessarily great news for a place like Vox.
1: No, and there are other forces. Like you can't tr- like there like some people say like go woke go broke. It's more, no, complicated, than it's more that. complicated. It's more complicated. It's more complicated than that. But you know you can see if you look at who the top writers are on Substack. I'm just going to pull up the, the the top writers right now. Okay, top writers. The Dispatch, that's a conservative outlet. Uh Number two, Letters from an American, Heather Cox Richard. I'm not familiar with her. It's about history. The Bulwark, that's conservative. Matt Taibbi, Andrew Sullivan, Bill Bishop, I also don't know about him. Glenn Greenwald. Um, These are all... Yasha Monk is in there. Like, if you look at the top ten... These are all these sort of contrarian, you know, people who were at, at institutions who have fled, um, in part because of this like monolithic, homogenous lack of diversity of thought. So they're doing really well. It,
0: it could be that go woke, go broke is an oversimplification, but, but there's a longer version of that. It's like go woke, fail to like, Express clearly what your publication stands for. Let bizarre bullshit take over within HR and within the newsroom. Then your talent leaves, and then that helps you go broke. Like that might be true because that's what's happening in some places.
1: Um, well, the content is like if you look at Vice, like if the content is boring, like that's my issue with it. Is Vice used to be like bad, but it was like kind of funny, interesting, edgy bad, and now it's boring, more more morality bad. Yeah. Um. You know, they're not like do like there's no like like gonzo journalism about doing cocaine off of a stripper's butthole anymore. It's like you know this Harry Potter book is problematic. It's just fucking boring. Well, I
0: mean, like, Wired, their video game writer, or one of their video game games, oh, covered, covered the Helen Lewis thing. It was like in this sort of moralizing tut tutting way like you know you really got to do a better job making sure someone you hire doesn't have offensive views in the past it's like
1: and it was also like like this assumption that helen lewis is transphobic which i don't think is fair at all you can't like you can look at her views and and like okay you can say that like the headline of of her her piece in the time the sunday times was uh like problematic or whatever but if you look at her actual views like helen lewis says she believes trans women are women and trans men are men she says the platitude but because other people it's like the jesse single thing where enough people say that she's transphobic and therefore she's transphobic
0: i'm glad you brought things back to me the real victim in all of this of
1: course of course well i'm the real victim because i'm the one who has to deal with you
0: exactly uh anything else on this it'll be interesting to see i i anticipate iglesias will do very well uh Anything else on any of this?
1: I'm resentful that he had to launch this on the same week that Moose Nuggets launched, but that's it. You know, that's it. I'll talk to him about that privately.
0: Yeah. Maybe you guys can uh, cross post content.
1: <laughs> that's a great idea. Maybe I'll do a guest post.
0: If you want to get in touch with us, you can always reach us at blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com. The uh, 4.6, 4.7 war on Apple podcast rages on. We are, we are losing people. Men are dying in the trenches. That's not, that's not an offensive analogy. But this is, this is really our Normandy. Wouldn't you say?
1: You know, I mean, I don't think it's a good analogy because we like it when men die in the trenches, as long as they're <laughs> cis white men. NBs are dying in the trenches, people.
0: Uh, if you would like to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that'd be great. As always, you can get much more content if you sign up for our Patreon. That's our premium subscription program. Just $5 a month. Patreon.com slash Reported. Uh, you also get early and ad-free episodes. I think that is it unless you have anything else to say about your dog's testicles Mm, mm, i
1: think i'm good on dog testicles for now ask me again in five minutes
0: this has been blocked and reported i'm jesse single and remember matt iglesias must be held accountable for all the colleagues he murdered with his signature
1: and i'm katie herzog and also remember all human beings are born philosophers unless they're born podcasters